I wore my work boots this morning because we've got some work to do. I, uh, you may not have worn yours, so you can just kind of symbolically, metaphorically put yours on because we have a meat eater sermon this morning. You'll need your Bible, um, and we need to begin with prayer for a divine, supernatural attentiveness. Lord, this morning, before we climb into the Word together, I want to pray for another church and pray for another pastor. I want to pray for Park Street Baptist Church in Greenville. I want to pray for Johnny Hales. Lord, first of all, before we even pray for the church, I want to pray for Johnny and his worship. Lord, I pray that you will guard him from everyone expecting everything from one man. Lord, I pray that in this church in Park Street Baptist, the deacons will deacon so that Johnny can pray and preach or pray and prepare to preach and study so that he can serve up meat-eating sermons on Sunday. Lord, I pray that before he even stands to deliver on Sunday that these messages, these truths have run him through and that it spills over onto his marriage and into his home. Lord, I pray that you will guard him from just doing a J-O-B, but that as an act of worship, he will preach and pastor, that he'll be a husband to his wife that puts the gospel on display. Lord, we pray as a result of that and out of an overflow of that, that God's people at Park Street will hear the word each week, that they will be stirred up by way of reminder, that their minds will be renewed, that they'll be quickened to saltiness, brightness, and that they'll be aromatic between Sundays. And pray that you'll be glorified through the life in that church. Lord, in whatever way possible, whatever opportunity that you give us, whether it's official or whether it's just an unofficial uh, way that we won't know this side of glory, I pray that we can truly serve as partnership with this church as well as the other Christian churches in our community that we can cheer for your glory in those churches and through those churches. And pray that they'll be used for your glory. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray that we will do the work that we need to do to engage just a massive, massive psalm, a massive truth about who Christ is, not only what he's done, but what's in store. Lord, I pray that I'll be poured out in the preaching and that your people will be poured out in the hearing. I pray for a divine attentiveness. I pray for nimble hands as we turn from passage to passage to understand this special and rich and important and key psalm. I look forward to what's in store, Lord. We're thankful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can turn to Psalm 110 if you'd like. I'm going to give you kind of a a little explanation of why we're going to Psalm 110 this morning. For those of you that have been memorizing Hebrews, you can in your mind, or if you want to, I don't know if anybody would actually even do this, you're welcome to join along with me. I'm going to do my best at it. I get nervous when I'm up here. I've got the first three verses down. In fact, the fourth one as well, but I get nervous when I'm in front of y'all. So that still happens to me. I don't know that I ever won't happen, but I'm going to give it a shot. And then explain why we're going to Psalm 110. Hebrews chapter 1, 
It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This last verse here, verse 3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mentioned, well, we, we engaged that, that passage alone last week, and I mentioned that this was a text that's taken from Psalm 110. And I just mentioned Psalm 110 in passing, indicating that we were going to go there this week. What I've realized in studying Psalm 110 as this Hebrews writer here quotes, and later he quotes verbatim in verse 13, is that this is a key psalm that's quoted more often than any other psalm in our New Testament. And I realize in some ways we're on a journey through the book of Hebrews together, sort of like we've left the house. Our car is packed. Uh, the kids are in the car. <laughs> You got it all together. You're driving away. You're, I don't know how far from home. Doesn't matter. Just, it's a metaphor. And you realize, I forgot something. I need to go back and get something, but it's too far to go back. So you stop at the stop and go and pick it up or Walmart. So this morning is a stop at the stop and go or the Walmart. I hate to even use those terms, even in the same language with Psalm 110, but just, just every illustration breaks down at some point. We're stopping at the stop and go today. And we're going to pick up Psalm 110. And it's going to equip us in some ways to understand the meat of what is so often referenced, not only in Hebrews, but in each of the the Gospels, in the book of Acts, in many of Paul's letters, and in Peter's letters. This psalm is so key that it's worth us stopping down this morning. And really, what I've realized is I'm not sure that we can truly get the Gospel or the New Testament in focus without Psalm 110. And the irony there, too, I don't know if it's irony, or the interesting thing there, too, is that I'm not sure that we can understand Psalm 110 without the New Testament in focus. So we have to keep them both right here. For me, I confess to you that I've never had Psalm 110 right here. So for me, I need it, and I think God's people need it this morning so we can have them both. I'm going to begin by reading Psalm 110. I guess I should turn there. I've been in Hebrews just in case I forgot a passage. I'm going to begin by reading it just kind of for bird's eye view, just sort of taking it all together. And then what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break it down verse by verse. And we're going to end with a couple of application points of what to do with this psalm. The psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. 
This psalm can in some ways be broken down into three chunks. The first chunk is verses 1 through 3 deals with the king. We're going to identify what, who specifically in a minute. But it deals with the king. Verse 4 deals with the priest. And then verses 5 through 7 deal with a warrior. Verses 1 through 3, king. Verse 4, priest. Verses 5 through 7, a warrior. Let's start with verse 1. Just unpack the luggage and freight within this psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, first of all, to really get into this psalm and understand what's being said here, we have to figure out who's talking to whom. We know that David is writing the psalm, but in order to understand the meaning, you have to figure out who it's about and who's the speaker. Last week, I said this about this psalm verbatim. I said it is a coronation psalm celebrating the enthronement of a royal figure, likely David. Now, let me tell you right now, it's about 5% that. Now, that number's ambiguous. I'm just pulling that out. It's a sliver of a coronation psalm about David. It's so much more than that. In fact, as David is sharing this psalm, likely at his own enthronement or possibly the enthronement of a priest or the installment of a priest, most of the people I bet would have thought, man, I like the tune, but I don't even have any clue what David's talking about. I don't even have any idea what David is talking about, but I sure like the tune to that psalm. Because it's about 95% having to do with someone else. Some of the clues. First of all, Yahweh would be, we could translate this passage, the Lord says to my Lord, Yahweh says to my Lord. In the original language, the Hebrew, it's pointing to this name of God, Yahweh. So it could say, Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now keep in mind, this is David writing a psalm. So he's got to be writing about someone else, someone that he refers to as his Lord. Now that's key. Yahweh says to my Lord, this is David writing, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So here God is speaking to David's Lord Now, you got to keep in mind that David was, at that time, the king of Israel, so he wouldn't be calling anybody Lord except Yahweh. So that's why 95% of this psalm, at least in that context, they're scratching their heads saying, who's David talking about? He's got no Lord other than Yahweh. He's saying here, Yahweh says to my Lord, who in the world is he talking about? Here in the same sentence, he says essentially what could be rendered, Yahweh says to the master I serve. And everybody's scratching their head saying, who does David serve? Other than Yahweh. And then he continues on with one of the most frequently quoted Old Testament passages in our New Testament. Now to figure out who this is, a few passages I'd like for you to turn to. First, Matthew chapter 22. Nimble fingers today. I'm not going to have you turn to every satellite that I have this morning, but I'm going to have you turn to some. As you're turning there, I'll encourage you to. I've been encouraged in studying Hebrews that the book of Hebrews is a sermon, and the Hebrews preacher has people going to all over the place. So we understand text with text. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 41. 
Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. You need to know that some of the, you know, it's almost like a, a, a design for the Pharisees. By design, they wanted to trip Jesus up. So they're always quizzing him on these questions. So he asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, Pharisees? Whose son is he? They said to him, Well, um, he's the son of David. He said to them, Well, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, I think a lot of my boys, but I don't think I will ever, Luke or Daniel, heads up, ever call you Lord. It'd be inappropriate. It just, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work. And Jesus is saying, how is David going to call his son Lord? And no one's able to answer him a word crickets, <laughs> Not from the day, uh, uh, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions, right? He just totally confounded them, made them a bunch of goobers, man. And this riddle, the irony, this riddle that he put in front of him, he is the answer to. The one who asks the question and poses it in front of him, how can David's son be his Lord? Well, that's who he is. The irony that they couldn't answer it was standing right before him. Now turn to Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's sermon preached at Pentecost on the birthday of the church. Just a whole other reason why it's so important that we engage Psalm 110. Because this is referenced, Psalm 110 is referenced here in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, beginning in chapter 2, verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. Now, let me just kind of escort you into something. You need to kind of think like a Jew for a minute, and I want you to just really revere David for a minute. I mean, it's kind of unnatural for a bunch of essentially Gentiles living in the year 2011 in Greenville, to think a whole, whole lot of David. But for these guys, for the Hellenistic Jews in Rome and for the native Jews in Jerusalem, they would have thought a whole lot of David. Moses, Abraham, they would venerate those guys. They would revere them. So just hear this. In the birthday of the church, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, I'm pretty sure about this, that the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. He's dead as a doorknob, guys. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. There's that image again. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David, as awesome as he is, he did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself, there's an emphasis on he himself said this. Yahweh said to the master I serve, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter recognizes the significance of David referring to another as his Lord. Peter gets it. They wouldn't have gotten it a thousand years earlier as David shared this psalm, but Peter gets it there. And that Jesus went on to be exalted at the right hand of God. He's speaking about Jesus. That's who this psalm is about. It doesn't come into focus or in view until the New Testament. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Just for the sake of context while you're turning, I'm going to begin in verse 63, but we're going to focus on verse 69. For the sake of context, I just love that this is the final hours before he goes to the cross. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. Men that he really gave breath and life to, men that wouldn't be unless he spoke them into existence, are beating him. They also blindfolded him and kept, kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, just imagine all these chief priests and scribes, sitting on their high knees, sitting on their behinds. He <laughs> is funny. I heard he look, he laugh. I want you to see it, kids. See all these chief priests and these scribes sitting on their backsides as they ask the one standing, beaten, bloodied, and standing, if you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it from from his own lips and essentially just said, crucify him. Later, Jesus applies this prophecy of Psalm chapter 110, or Psalm number 110, to himself. In the final hours before he goes to the cross, he identifies himself as that Lord that David said that Yahweh was speaking to. That's me. That's essentially what he's saying. So Yahweh says to Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This psalm is Jesus-centric. If we want to use those same percentages, it's 95% about Jesus. 5% about David leaving everybody scratching their head. 95% about Jesus leaving us to go, oh yeah, it's there for the taking. Let's take it together this morning. Now, I want you to know that these would have been good reminders for some Hellenistic Jews who were migrating back to their old Judaism as they venerate David or as they venerate Abram, Abraham, Elijah, Moses, the Hebrews preacher has taken them back saying, guess what? David called Jesus Lord. This one that you revere, King David called him the master that I serve. The Hebrews preacher does this with David. He's going to do it next with angels, just in case anybody's really into angels. 
He's going to do it with Abraham, with Joshua, and with the priests. You want sort of an outline of the book of Hebrews? You just got it. He did it with David. He's about to do it with angels, then with Moses, with Joshua, and with the priests, showing them that, man, Jesus is it. He is the only one worthy of worship, Jews. It's a good reminder for these guys. He goes on to say, back in Psalm chapter 110, he says, Yahweh says to Jesus, sit at my right hand. Now, I want you to go to Acts chapter 2, or stay there if you're already there. You may have gone over to Luke chapter 22. Go back to Acts chapter 2. I want to bring in or bring into focus this sit at my right hand image through a couple of pictures in the New Testament. The first one being here in this passage we just read. You may remember I just emphasized in verse 29 of chapter 2, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. He is stone cold dead. I can say that to you with confidence. And then later in verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says about Jesus, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. God never said, as much as he said to David, God never said to David, David, sit right here on my right hand. He never said that to David. It's emphasized on purpose. God never said, sit here on my right to David. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, the Hebrews writer takes them to angels. And he said, did he ever say to an angel, sit at my right hand and let me make your enemies and the nations your footstool? He never said that to angels. He never said it to David. He never said it to angels. He has only said it to Christ. Here in Acts chapter 2, look in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, Yahweh said to my Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus whom you crucified, God has exalted and said, sit here on my right hand. He never said it to David. Venerate him all you want, but he never said it to David. He never said it to any angels. He's only said it to Jesus. Jesus was exalted to this high and special spot at the Father's right hand, and none other was ever or will ever hold that spot. That spot's for Jesus alone. And then he says, sit here at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool share a passage with you from the book of Joshua. You don't need to turn there. I want you to just listen to this. I want you to understand what this means here. Joshua chapter 10, verse 22. Listen. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. Now, if you remember the story, you remember where Joshua fits in the story, the story of conquest. The nation of Israel has gone on into Canaan and they're whipping people's behinds left and right. And they got five kings holed up in a cave right now. Listen to what happens. Bring those five kings out to me from the cave. 
And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come here, boys. Come near. Put your feet on the necks of these kings. Parade those five boys out here, and I want you to get them to hunker down, put them down on their faces or, on, or kneeling, and then I want you to put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near, put their feet on their necks, and Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, boys, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. This was an ancient practice. Once you'd whip somebody's behind, you paraded them out in front of you, and you got them down on their face, and you put your feet up on their necks. And that's what the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord. Put your feet on your enemies. Make a footstool of your enemies. It became a phrase to make your enemies your footstool. And here Yahweh is promising Jesus that he'll subdue his enemies and make them his footstool. Now turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> it seems in the Greek context that it was sort of ridiculous to teach or preach anything having to do with the resurrection of the dead. In fact, the Greeks kind of thought that once you died, at least the thinking Greeks, the real educated Greeks, thought that once you died, you sort of went to this underworld and just existed down there. So the notion of any sort of resurrection was pretty ludicrous. And it seems that, that that sort of thought had crept into the Corinthian church, and Paul is encouraging them with helping them remember that Christ was resurrected, and your resurrection is certain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29, he says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who's fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. This is all context. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made but all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then is his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now here's where his, his enemies are made footstools, right here. You want to see what it's going to look like? You want to imagine some of the details? It's going to look and sound like this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. For God has put all things into subjection under his feet. Paul encouraged the Corinthian church with this reality. That Christ is eventually going to destroy every rule, every authority, and every power and place those enemies under his feet like the five chumps in Joshua chapter 5. See it, boys. Enjoy that image. The whole earth will be subdued by and for Jesus. And verse 2 of Psalm chapter 110. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Yahweh sends forth from Zion Jesus' mighty scepter. A scepter is a rod or a staff or a stick. And Zion here seems to be heaven, and he's saying, really, it's, it's a command to rule. Rule from heaven with your rod of iron, with your scepter, with your staff. He is commanded by the Father to rule in the midst of his enemies, and he will and he does. I'll share with you in a few minutes what that looks like, the character of that. Moving on to verse 3. Really, I think one of the most beautiful parts of this psalm. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh says to Jesus that your people, Jesus, will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. If you'd like to turn there, you can. This is not an essential. Judges chapter 5. As a family, we've been reading together Judges and we've been reading about um, Shamgar and Ehud sticking somebody with a knife and Othniel that we all say funny around the house. Deborah has one of the most interesting stories. Deborah, you need to read it. I'm not going to give you the whole story. But Deborah writes a song. And in the song, she and her military leader, Deborah is a judge, she and her military leader, Barak, Sing this song together. And here's what they say in this song. It's familiar language. It says, The leaders took the lead in Israel that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. He says it again later in the verse, or later in the chapter in verse 9. My heart goes out to all the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. What that looks like, he says later in verse 18, Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. The description or the character of the people is that their people were free will, free will offerings. They're offering themselves willingly to the Lord. Lord, whatever you need of me, here you go. I'm an offering, it sounds to me, strangely like Romans Chapter 12, Paul, or, uh, uh, Scott preached from this a few weeks ago. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, you could say, as a free will offering, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's a beautiful Deborah connection. The character of the people was, here I am. You need me for something? I don't care if it even costs my life. Take it. My life is offered up as a living sacrifice. And these people who have offered up their lives for our King, Christ, are like dew. We haven't seen dew in a while. I had to recollect what dew looked like because I just haven't seen it on my yard in so long. But man, I love it when you step outside, step out into the yard, you cross the grass, and your feet are just soaking wet because there's dew everywhere, these drops everywhere. This is the imagery of Christ's army, like dew, silently and suddenly mobilized. Your people will be arrayed for battle. I like how dew glistens and it's equidistant. They're all just, just scattered perfectly across the yard. That's Christ's army, like innumerable dew drops all over the earth. An army that stands ready 
like Deborah's Israel? Do you see yourself arrayed for battle like dew? Let's pray for dew just so we can be reminded of the army that we are for King Jesus. Whether you recognize it or not, that is our role. We are a splendid army, fit and ready in holy garments. I found this phrase, John Calvin said, gathered by the sound of the gospel. A splendid, dew-like army gathered by the sound of the gospel. Man, this is a martial call for God's people to stand ready in holy garments for King Jesus. Now the psalm shifts gears to the priest in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As we ask this question about Psalm 110, what is it? It's maybe 5% coronation of a king or installment of a priest. But you need to know and realize that Israel had three distinct offices. They had prophet, priest, and king. And they were distinct. And you need to realize when one wanted to play the part of another, they got jammed up for it. You may remember Saul getting in all this kind of trouble because he was appointed king, but yet he wanted to play priest and prophet, and offer up some sacrifices. They were very distinct roles, and that on purpose. But then David was unique. David is a type of Christ to come. He helps us understand what Christ will be like. Listen to this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Don't turn there, just listen. Three things about David that are important. Chapter 6, verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, I've read that a million times and understood that to be he just dancing like in a loincloth. An ephod is what the priest wore. He's wearing priestly garments. He may not have had anything else on, which is why he got trouble with his wife, but he's got on priestly garments. A king. Wearing priestly garments. And look down in verse 17, if you're, if you're over there. If not, just listen. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. What are you doing, David? You're a king. He's wearing priestly garments. And then in verse 18, and he's offering up offerings. And then in verse 18, and when David had finished offering the bird offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Man, that's a head scratcher. Three distinct offices, yet it looked like here the, the, the king David is doing some priestly things. He's dressed like a priest. He's in charge of the sacrifices, and he's giving a priestly blessing. Now, here's what's important about that. If the psalm, Psalm 110, is partially just a sliver, 5% about David, and David is a type of Christ to come, if looking at him and the way he's operated, the way he's moved is going to help us understand Christ, then what was partially true about David, he's sort of a priestish king, is totally true about Christ. He is both priest and and king. And here it is in the divine oath 
that it will come to pass. It is guaranteed. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now, I do want you to turn here. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2. The two sets of brothers in the Old Testament that really come to mind as being severe knuckleheads. Both of them were sons of priests. Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons. You may remember the story of Nadab and Abihu. Offered up strange fire and they actually came consumed by the fire. They went freestyle in worship and actually became the, the sacrifice that's offered up in worship where they just, the fire just consumes. With another set of brothers that were problematic. Phineas and Hophni were their names. They just sound like trouble, don't they? Phineas and Hophni. And I'll just start in verse 12 of chapter 2. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice... The priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let him burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Phineas and Hophni were going a little freestyle too, and they were being sort of uh, pigs. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Look down at verse 22. Now Eli, the priest, was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they, not only were they picking out on, the, on the, the offerings, they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Oh, yikes. Seriously? The priest's sons? And he said to them, why do you do, our Eli's sons, they're serving as priests too. Why do you do such things for our, Eli's talking to him. He says, I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father. Hear that, kids? They wouldn't listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And then down in verse, beginning in verse 27. Actually, I want to jump to, yeah, 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? He's speaking of the Levites, Aaron and the Levites. To go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? Didn't I choose these guys for this? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then you, do you, Eli, scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? I made this promise to you, and yet 
you not following through on your end of the deal. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me. Hear it. Forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Ends up, Phineas and Hophni die. He's revoking the promise that he made to the Levites. He said, I'm going to take that promise back. But this Christ is going to, or this, this Jesus that we're speaking of here, who's king and priest, he's going to be a priest forever. This priest, unlike Eli and the Levites, will be and is perfect. He'll not squander or be unfaithful in that position like these guys were, Nadab and Abihu or Phineas and Hophni. He will never abuse his office. Jesus is a priest forever, like the type that Melchizedek was. I'll share with you briefly who Melchizedek is. Genesis chapter 14. Abraham has just whipped the king of Sodom and some of these other kings, Chedorlaomer. It says, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of the Most High God. This guy's just here to help us understand what Jesus is like. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This guy that just shows up, we don't know anything about him. He just shows up here on the scene. He, his name is Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which means he's the king of peace. And he's priest of the Most High God, El Elyon. And he is so Jesus-like. At Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, says that he didn't have a beginning of days or an end of life. This guy is just here. He may have been Jesus. He's here to help us understand the forever, pure, perfect nature of Christ as priest. What you should hear at this point, you may not have thought of this, but I want to escort you to this thought, is we don't need anyone holding the office of priest anymore in the church. That's not what your elders are. We are not priests. You don't need anybody holding this office anymore because Christ holds it forevermore. Anyone in the church that's claiming to affect reconciliation between God and sinners is not needed anymore because that's what Christ did and does. It's already been accomplished once and for all in this forever priest. Man, is anybody tired yet? That's good. Let me share with you. Up to this point, I've been talking about sort of a contra expectation. I mentioned this word last week as a parking place for sort of this surprise reality. 
Will you hear all these things and then, but you expect, or what you hear these things and you expect to see something, but then you look and you see something totally different that Christ is a contra expectation? As you're hearing all this language so far in these first four verses, you're hearing rule, you're hearing power, you're hearing might. But what I want you to understand so far in this psalm, although there have been hints of what's in store for us, they've sort of been dealing with with something that has happened already. The Hebrews writer helps us connect it. Where he says, after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What we need to hear as we hear these first four verses and we hear about power and might and victory, we need to be thinking cross. The Hebrews writer connects the seated position. They are tethered together. He doesn't sit down until he goes to the cross. And his proper position seated at the right hand is earned via the cross. The cross is in view here in these first four verses. It may not look like it. But man, this is rule in the midst of your enemies. If there ever ever was such a thing, here it is in the person of Christ. I'll share a psalm with you, and then we're going to move on with the rest of our Psalm 110. Psalm chapter 22 is a ruler's psalm. Listen to it. This is a contra expectation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. Sound like a ruler? Sound like somebody that might ride a donkey's colt. Sound like somebody that might wash feet like a servant. Sound like somebody that might be might stoop and be born in flesh, poor flesh in Bethlehem and laid in a manger. Yet you are holy and thrown on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm. I'm not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. We read some passages already about the hours before he goes to the cross. What what happens to Christ? He is mocked by people that he spoke into existence. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. Does that sound like rule? My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. Hear him say, I thirst. 
My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. If it's rule, it's a contrary rule. You agree? It doesn't sound like rule. It doesn't look like rule. In fact, one of the thieves said, man, you're a chump. Then it goes on to say, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden from him, his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him, from you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you because they're going to be your footstool for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations it doesn't sound like rule it doesn't look like rule but it is connected to his seated position at the father's right hand and the already man that was rule in action And it's a contra expectation. But let me tell you something. From this point on and the rest of this psalm, Psalm 110, it goes from contra expectation to ultra expectation. It starts to deal with the not yet. It's leaned toward the already that was accomplished in the cross, but now it leans in the direction of the not yet to the ultra expectation. Go Go back to Psalm 110. You're close. You got to hang in there, though. Don't leave the goods at this point. Psalm 110, chapter 5, or chapter, or Psalm 110, verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. This is speaking of a future day. What you need to understand is his place at the Father's right hand isn't his final place, for he is to return at a future date, and there will be a day of wrath. It's going to be very different from a starry night in Bethlehem. It will be the ultra expectation. When you think might, and you think power, and you think rule, and you think a rod of iron, and you think crushing the enemy and putting your feet on his neck, you think of what about to, is about to unfold here. In verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Now, I'm going to deal with the not yet in just a second, but I want to at least deal with just a little bit of already, because you may not realize it, but we're a bunch of corpses. We are already a fulfillment of this passage. Listen to these passages from Romans. 
I'm just going to read them to you. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Listen, what then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet. But the law had not said, or if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came... Sin came alive, and I died. You may not realize it yet, but those who are in Christ, we've already died. We were already fulfillment of this psalm. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Those of you who have come up next to the law, and you've realized how far, fall, how far show, short you fall of his glory. <laughs> that was a tongue twister. Man, the law did its work and you died. Man, you're a fulfillment of those corpses littering the field. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and though it killed me. And through it, killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. A chapter earlier in Romans, it says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can one who died to sin still have been baptized? Or how can one who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And we're a fulfillment of this already. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's the already aspect of this. If you're in Christ, then you've already died. You're already fulfillment of that. Corpses littering the field. But there's a not yet in store. Listen to these passages. Just listen. And just listen like this is real and true. Like this will happen. It litters and it's all over. Litter's not a good word. It is saturates the Psalms, just in the first few Psalms. Chapter 2, or Psalm 2, verse 8 and 9. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of your earth, the earth your possession. You shall break, that's the nations, with a rod of iron, and shall dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Chapter 7, verse 8, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that's in me. Chapter 8, verse 6, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Chapter 9, verse 8, He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. This picture of judgment and rule that is in store is all saturated in the, in the Psalms. That's just the first few Psalms. Probably the most graphic image of his rule and his return are detailed is in Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. I was looking for a donkey's colt and you know what? I didn't see it. I saw a proper horse this time. It wasn't a contrary expectation. It was the ultra expectation. I saw a white horse, and then one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does what he judges and makes 
war. Ricky Bobby's prayer, uh, Jesus doesn't do this. Ricky Bobby's Jesus, his little baby Jesus, he's, he's easy to deal with. If your Jesus is just an earthly Jesus, he's pretty easy to deal with too. But this risen Jesus seated at the Father's right hand, that's going to come back on a white horse that will come back to judge and make war. Now that's an altogether different Jesus. Or it's the same Jesus, just rounded out. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. That's crowns. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, we could add, like dew. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on our own little white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This Jesus is going to come back to do some serious business. Man, that's what Psalm 110 is about. If you just limit him to the cross, Jesus... You miss out on this Jesus because he's this too. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God. This is not the marriage supper of the lamb. This is a different supper. Listen to what's in this supper. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against the army. You got these two armies out here. You got us splayed like dew, arrayed all over the countryside. And then you got the army of the beast. And the beast was captured like a chomp. The beast is captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the sign, the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were chunked, that's my word, alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain, I wish I could say by his army, because man, I'm thinking, I'm a former Marine, I want to do battle for Jesus. I'm on my white horse. I got my sword. I'm ready, Jesus. It's on. But turns out, the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who's sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I read that and I go, man, turns out I'm just a pep squad. Turns out that army arrayed like dew, ready to do battle with this returning warrior, are just the cheerleaders. We're just there to watch him do battle as he shatters chiefs over the wide earth, as he fills the earth with corpses. He judges and makes war. Do you see this and think about this when you think about Jesus? You need to. You know what? I want the truth. 
I shared with Scott a little while ago that this sermon a few years ago would have been very troubling for me because I felt like we had to make the truth savory. I don't feel that way now. I care how it's received, but I care more than that whether it's true. And the contemporary mind doesn't like a Jesus like this. What? I like the nice one that gets on Peter for cussing. Now, Peter. I like Ricky Bobby's Jesus. I I don't. I'm saying we might think that. I like the true Jesus. I want to hear the truth, whatever violence it does to my contemporary mind. Because eternity is a long daggum time. Right? Does anybody fancy the thought of a lake of sulfur? Oh, that's no big deal. That's a big deal. (laughs) And eternity is a long time. It's worth engaging the truth, even if it's some sort of difficult truth to consider. This is Christ. Psalm 110, we've already established, is about Jesus. And man, I'm telling you, he is going to slay the better part of the earth. The better part of the earth is going to be littered with corpses. He's going to destroy every rule, every authority, every king, every principality. And he is and will ever be the king of kings and lord of lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is lord. Man, that's ultimate reality. Take all this other stuff in your life that just seems so real and so ever-present and so urgent and realize that is ultimate reality. (laughs) Just for a moment, try and put all this real stuff, this stuff that seems so vivid and important aside and just go, okay, I want to engage some truth that's outside of me, that's real, that doesn't move from week to week, that is absolute. I want to engage it and I want that to become my ultimate reality to where it gives me a new lens to view the rest of this stuff. When you consider this reign and this rule of this king, priest, and warrior, it just sheds light on the rest of your life. It just does. I can't tell you how it does because it's going to be different in every single one of your lives. A report from the doctor, you got cancer, and you read, oh, well, he's ruler, and he reigns, and he is warrior, and he is king, and I know that I'm going to be with him, and it's going to be okay. Am I going to say, goody? Probably not. I don't have any money. I've lost my job. Oh, yeah, but he rules and he reigns. It just tempers everything it's got to. Because this is ultimate reality. It's the truest thing you've thought about all week. It's the truest thing I've said all week. This moment is the truest moment that we've experienced this week. Think about that. The thoughts that you have about God... In Christ, right now, are the truest thoughts you've had all week. The last verse of this psalm. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. There's imagery here from Judges as well. From Gideon's story of selecting the 300, those that lapped up the water like dogs. Those 300 went into battle and were victorious. At one point, as they're chasing the enemy, they come to the Jordan, and it doesn't say that they lapped up some more there, but I just can't imagine that they didn't because they've already proven to be a bunch of lappers. 
I'm just imagining as they press on to victory, faint, but yet pursuing is what it says, that the Jordan wasn't running down their beards as they're pursuing the enemy to victory. I'm just imagining this king, this priest, this warrior with the Jordan running down his beard as his head is lifted in victory. I say, yes, that's my Jesus. Yes, that's my Jesus. Two implications, and they are brief, but they're important. The first one has to do with missions. Seeing the truth of Psalm 110 should affect our view on missions. Missions is the work of making Christ's enemies his friends. It's making new corpses, so to speak. It's making those who are buried with Christ but raised to walk in newness of life. Missions, I want you to think about missions this way. It is the work of subduing the nations. Or it's the work of subduing your workspace. Or subduing your neighborhood. Now that doesn't mean you go to the office and just be a severe horse behind. I'm here to subdue you. Realize that's what his message does. He told the Corinthians, man, it's going to be an aroma of life to some. To most, it'll be aroma of death. No thanks, that's ridiculous, that's stupid. But some are going to say, man, that's true. And realize in the same message that's shared, there's life given, corpses made that, are, that find new life in Christ, and other corpses made through judgment. You don't do it. The message does it. Think of missions as subduing the nations. It's bringing them into submission or it's bringing them into judgment with the very same message. The message does it. Sometimes I wonder if the crusaders didn't have a better understanding of subduing the nations than we do. Now they had the wrong tool or wrong weapon in hand. They did it with a real sword. We're to do it with good news, with a piercing message that divides. Know it. It divides. Jesus said, you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? I've come come to bring division. Families will be divided against each other. That's the effect of a properly cast message. Is it will subdue some to life and subdue others to death. But missions is the work of subduing. This is how we love our enemies. With this difficult, even divisive message of the cross. It's a divisive message. It causes his own people to stumble. It's a divisive message. And as we sow this message in every place, man, we need to pray for more dew. Pray for more dew drops. Man, beg for them. Gathered at the sound of the gospel. Psalm 110 is one of the instruments that the Hebrew writer uses to stir his people to get out from behind locked doors. For he's king, he's priest, and he's warrior. Don't hunker down like a bunch of scared babies. Get out and subdue the nations. That's where he takes them. 
get out and boldly, as Paul begged for. He, anytime he's asked somebody to pray for me, pray this. I will share the gospel boldly, faithfully, truly. That's how we subdue our context. Secondly, it has to do with worship. Psalm 110, in light of Hebrews, should help guard us from moving back to the comfortable and known. This Hebrew church, they're just an illustration of what we all do. We gravitate back toward the easy. We gravitate back toward the known. The Hebrews writer uses this text to show that Jesus is ultimate king and priest. And now that he's come and made purification for sins and sat down, Christian Jews better not even think about returning to ordinary Jewish ways. Thinking those sacrifices work. They don't even work. Don't even think about going back to those ways. The only way now for the Jew or the Gentile is the way of Jesus, and it will likely cost your life. I was thinking about what this sermon is. Gather up all my little red stickies here. You guys made it, by the way. I'm just closing it out. That was a tough one. Y'all did pretty good. Time will tell if you dine on it, but... I know that's a meat-eater sermon. I'll tell you right now, this is a special sermon to me because I think a few years ago, not only because of the content of presenting this, this warrior Jesus would have been sort of troubling for me, not only because of that, but really because it's just sort of a no-frill sermon. <laughs> I don't have any funny stories. <laughs> I mean, you got to know, I like sharing some funny stories every now and again. I'm not here to entertain, and I never have been. But something about a funny story where everybody laughs for a little bit, you're like, okay, we can make it through the rest of the sermon. Uh, This has none of that. It doesn't have any nice, tidy illustrations that just sort of bring it into focus. It's a no-frills, bee-feeding straight Jesus sermon. There's no real application like where you're going to walk away and go, aha, eureka, here's what I need to do tomorrow. The application is to enjoy Jesus. And a few years ago, this sermon would have been really troubling for me. But in the last three years, really since my sabbatical, God has shown me so much about real love in my marriage. In the last three years, I have really, for the first time in 16 at this point, begun to enjoy Christy just for who she is. She just makes me laugh. She's just funny, and she's wise. There's so much that I just enjoy about who she is. The reason we had such conflict for so many years there is because I was expecting all this stuff from her and wanting all this stuff from her. She was a functional savior for me. And that's why she was so miserable and I was miserable. But in these last few years, I've just really begun to enjoy her. And I've realized in some ways, that's what this sermon is like. When Christy and I were young, most of my love for her was really about, well, what can you do for me? How can you make me happy? But as we mature... It's more about enjoyment. And this is one of those types of sermons. 
It's just about Jesus. It's not about you. It's about a Jesus that's worth being smitten with. It's about a Jesus that's worth being surprised by, that his grace would reach so low. It's about his irony. Hey, God's story just gets funny to me at times. Think about a couple weeks ago. Two critters have a way out, donkeys and humans. Tell me that's just not funny. (laughs) He just makes me laugh. And he makes me cry thinking about how awesome and great and mighty and wonderful and beautiful and how available he is. This is one of those sermons, just a pure enjoyment sermon. My prayer for you in this message is that this sermon, along with whatever crisis escorts you, because crises do that, that this sermon will edge you closer to just enjoying Him for His sake. That you'll be more worshiper and less consumer. I wrote these notes. I wrote this last note on my page here early this morning before I knew where Scott was going in song. It's just appropriate. When you enjoy Him that way, the things of earth grow strangely dim. They just do. I don't know how they do, they just do. In the light of His glory and grace. Let's pray. God, you are so, so good. It startles me and it shocks me that you would call the likes of us to be part of your army like dew arrayed in fine linen. It's just a surprise grace. Lord, I pray that we will just enjoy you, that this morning that we've enjoyed you, even with hard work, that we've enjoyed Jesus as king, as priest forever, with a promise and oath that will never be revoked, and as a warrior, mighty, riding a white horse, King of kings and Lord of lords, a blood-dipped robe, slaying your enemies, placing them under your feet.
Lord, I pray that you will find us well shattered and well broken. Pray that you'll put us into a place of submission and satisfaction and enjoyment and awe and wonder at who you are and what you've done in the person of Christ. Lord, we continue on this morning in song and in giving and in supper. And we count it a crazy scandal that we get to enjoy you. Pray these things this morning in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. I just have one closing thought. You know, Psalm 2 has been another psalm that's been really key for understanding the first chapter of Hebrews. And I was thinking about as we read about one supper and then took another, how interesting this was. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens, though, he laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. There's two meals. One we take and one that you are. I would rather be the one involved in the meal where we actually take. <laughs> the other meal was the, the corpses lying everywhere that are gorging the birds, the carry-on. I mean, it, I pass on that meal. And the difference between the two meals is kissing the sun, taking refuge in him. That's what worship is, enjoying Jesus. Those that are gathered by the sound of the gospel won't become a dinner. We'll take a dinner together in glory. Man, I am enjoying that. I hope you are too.